the world of comics podcasts is unpredictable. Yeah, like, is the episode going up at 9 a.m. Eastern or Pacific? When you least expect it. Everything changes. I mean, I do love a good bonus episode. They are coming. Acts of Friendship. The Comics Podcast Crossover. Oh, I see what they did there. Coming November 2018. Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. And happy Halloween, everyone. The episode you're about to hear we recorded live and on location as part of Halloween Comic Fest at Level Up Entertainment in the Hamilton Mall in Mays Landing, New Jersey. It is all about horror comics, and it marks the triumphant reunion of the three amigos. In addition to Matt Lazowitz, we are joined once again by Rob Lynch, and it was a real treat to just kick back and talk about stuff like Bernie Wrightson, uh, old EC comics, Lock and Key, Colin Bunn, and all other sorts of seasonally appropriate goodness. Uh, but there's still plenty out going on after Halloween here at WMQComics.com. On November 17th, we are co-sponsoring Level Up Entertainment Presents Brian and Mark's Pinball Arcade Monsters, a charity pinball tournament to benefit the Arc of Atlantic County, which helps people with intellectual and developmental disabilities here in South Jersey. It is going to be at the Starcade at the Showboat Atlantic City Hotel. It is going to be a ton of fun, and you should buy tickets and come check it out, especially because I am formally right now here on this podcast issuing a challenge to my good friends and event co-sponsors over at Farpoint Toys and Collectibles. Uh, That's right, past podcast guests and friends of the show, Penelope and Justin, my crazy flipper fingers are challenging you for silver ball supremacy. Think you have what it takes to beat me in the name of charity? Let's find out November 17th in the ring. Uh, But even if you don't want to compete, uh, they're also selling open arcade tickets. So uh, if you are in the Atlantic City area and you love pinball, please support this event. Um... But yeah, Penelope and Justin, I'm going to clobber you. Uh, No, it's all going to be fun. Uh, Moving on, as we transition from Unktober to November, a reminder that all next month we'll be participating in Acts of Friendship, a comics podcast crossover. Uh, I'm going to be guesting on a couple of podcasts coming up, including, I believe, sooner rather than later, uh, Chris's On Infinite Earths, a show about comic book crossovers. In the meantime, please check out the other... Uh, shows involved including Battle of the Atom, Multiversal Q, The Young Ones, and Play Comics. But for now, uh, here are me and Matt and Rob. All right, so we are hanging out at the Hamilton Mall uh, it, uh, for Halloween Comic Fest. Uh, they've got we're, we found like a relatively quieter uh, place to record because where our table was actually set up. They were uh, blaring them choice hits like the Adams Family rap, and uh, also I think Will, I heard Will Smith's Nightmare on My Street. But anyway, uh, we've reassembled the three amigos. Matt Laswitz is here. Rob Lynch is back. It's been too long. Uh, it's Halloween, so of course we are talking uh, horror comics. Um, how do we want to start? Well, I'm figuring. Let's. I figure the best place for us to start is at the beginning, um, and try to figure. Out talk about what were our our own first exposures to horror in comics um i'm talking so i will go first um for me i have two particular memories one is this weird little series of younger readers prose novels inspired 
actually directly adapting classic Tales from the Crypt stories, except they would punctuate every couple of pages with a panel right out of the uh, lifted right out of those issues. And so like any the old EC comics. The old classic mm. EC comics. So any of the softening that they were doing <laughs> in the prose sections were completely undermined by these delightfully creepy panels. And I specifically remember two stories that were in different volumes because they taught me what we now understand as metatext. Because one story in the one of the first books has this guy go into this weird, creepy town, and it turns out that the whole town is populated by vampires, and they kill him and eat him at the end. And then in another volume, a little later on, guy goes into this creepy little town, and he's like, Aha! I've read this Tales from the Crypt story, so I know everyone in this creepy town is a vampire. I'm ready for this. And they're like, yeah, no, we're all werewolves in this town. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> and they kill and eat him. Quick postscript to that. The story about the town with the vampires, did it happen to end with a school bus full of children vampires? It might have. Where they, they stopped off for a drink. Mm-hmm. I, yes, yeah, yes. That, that, that does ring a bell now. I think so. Um, my other early horror comic is actually a horror-superhero hybrid. A three-issue arc in Batman, I believe it's 452 to 454, it's right around the time I started reading, called Dark Knight, Dark City. It's Peter Milligan and Kieran Dwyer, I believe. It's actually something that has become really key to Batman lore since, because it introduced the concept of Barbatos. Oh, oh. That is a Milligan thing. Milligan, that happened? Yes. I thought that was like a metal creation. No, that Milligan creates Barbatos as this demon that the, you know, grandfather, the fathers of Gotham City tried to summon. And it, it's been trapped under Gotham for all these years. And the Riddler gets influenced by the demon, and it starts trying to get Batman to perform the ritual to free it. And the thing that is absolutely like horror and terrifying that I remember is the the guys are sat the, the these you know guys in powdered wigs and like revolutionary era are preparing to sacrifice this girl to the demon and then a giant bat comes through and they all freak out and they leave the girl trapped and you see her trying to dig her way out her fingers being worn down to the bone and it's utterly creepy and it, I mean it is a horror story centered around Batman and I had never read a horror a horror comic before and to toss it in with Batman there is something suitable about Batman and horror that works better than Superman or Flash in horror though there have been some decent you know superheroes who you wouldn't expect to work with horror but Batman is sort of built in that with you know superstitious cowardly lot and all that he is the knight he is so, I, I think my first real taste of uh, comic horror was actually it was circa 1987. Uh, it was somebody who was actually passing around uh, a copy of the Creep Show adaptation by Bernie Wrightson oh. from, from, from Stephen King and George Romero. I think it was. Uh, it came out in time to like uh, cash in with the second film, which came out. I think it was like the summer of uh, 87, and uh, 
I mean, that was really that, that first, you know, that taste of that. And then, uh, you know, not much long after that, I started um, really getting into, like, the Marvel, like, film adaptations. And I remember they did an adaptation of the second House film, which nobody remembers. Remember the first one with William Cat and George Went, the Vietnam vet? And yeah, they did, they did a, a really awful sequel, but Marvel had a film adaptation of that. But uh, going back to Creepshow, just that idea of like that anthology horror. Um, a couple of years later, we have on HBO the Tales from the Crypt series. I mean, and as a kid, I really had no idea that this was based on a whole series of books, you know, from the '50s. That Creepshow was a straight-up love letter to. And you know, I think my, my first real, you know, getting my hands into it was the summer of 1990, when um, a company called Gladstone started reprinting the old. 50s EC. They did them out of sequence. It wasn't like a straight one-to-one reprint, actually, as they were, you know, originally published. But it was sort of like a grab bag of like these are the best stories. And the first one that I ever read was uh, the classic "Wish You Were Here," which was sort of you know a, a modern adaptation of the Monkey's Paw. Be careful what you wish for. You know, just that horrific image of you know the man who uh, wished for uh, everlasting life gets into the horrific accident, and then the next thing you know he's being embalmed and. He's alive while he's being involved, and it's just, it's, you know, even for that time, I mean, that's, that, that is just timeless horror. Um, and then to really kind of go with, like, you know, the superhero-themed horror, and this is more horrific, and it was something that really, like, haunted me was one of the earliest comics that I ever read. It was, uh, I believe it was Classic X-Men 8. Now, in the late 80s, uh, the Classic X-Men series, what they did was they started back with the original all-new, all-different um, team and they started reprinting it but with the added bonus of Chris Claremont wrote a backup story that kind of like embellished or filled in the blanks and he had John Bolton of all people do the artwork now it was the uh, reprint of uh, issue 100 where Jean is on the shuttle and mm-hmm. the backup to that was her dying horribly I mean you know just being exposed to this radiation and being tempted by the phoenix and the entire backup story takes place entirely in her head it's just that that temptation of everlasting life and it was just very haunting i mean the way it was illustrated and it's just always stuck with me and you know my favorite part i think of the entire phoenix saga is actually that backup story which was later reprinted uh the vignettes yes. trade paperback series which i highly recommend Great to anybody trades. if you can get a hold of them if you're a classic x-man fan definitely something to look out for so you know over the years what to you guys have you come to find makes a good horror comic for you for me and i mean this you could argue that this is true about any type of media but for me, the thing that drives horror more than a lot of other genres is character. That you can have a sci-fi story or a fantasy story that is very plot-driven. I mean, let's be completely fair. A lot of like, your classic, your prototypical classic fantasy story, Lord of the Rings, is a plot story. The characters in Lord of the Rings are not very well rendered. They're mm-hmm. just sort of there to forward this quest. Horror, you have to either care about or want to see the comeuppance given to 
the main character. That drives that engine. I mean, we've talked about Creepshow, and Stephen King is one of my favorite writers. And, I mean, you can say a lot of things. I love Stephen King. And I think, I mean, there are a lot of criticisms, and a lot of them are fair, about his third acts often kind of falling flat. And that's a plot problem. But you read King because he crafts characters that you really come to care about. You want to see them get out of the horrible predicaments he's put them in, and you feel bad when he mercilessly kills them. People go on about George R. R. Martin and his Kill Your Darlings, but King has been doing that forever. You know, the thing about King also, to kind of add on to that, I don't, there's nobody else that I can think of, you know, in, in popular writing who can really speak to, you know, the innocence and mystery of childhood, and especially, you know, how they face the darkness. I mean, you see that in It, you see that in The Talisman. I mean, he's got a real knack for, you know, just the language and everything. There's a, a great, it was a little novella he co-wrote that came out last year called Gwendy's Button Box. And if you if you get a chance, it's a hundred pages, and it's this girl who's given a box by a character who, if you know your king, you know this character, and you know that him giving this <laughs> box to this girl is not a good thing, because this is not a guy who does anything for a good reason. And you see her struggling with what happens, and knowing that if you push the wrong button, terrible things happen. And trying to, and it's, you know, you watch her, she gets the box when she's 10 or 11 and has it until she's I think 18 or 19 and it's just this again it's you see it's about growing up and about choices you make and King can capture that like very few other writers um, how about modern stuff like what what's kind of sticking out to you guys now because there is a little bit of a, a you know, mini horror renaissance in comics. You know, I mean, just in general, there are more comics, so it stands I have, to reason there is more horror. I, I have just showed up fashionably late to the uh, Ice Cream Man hype party. Well, let me tell you that. It, it, talk about something that you know. The best way to kind of describe it is when you go to Core Brothers, and you get like you know a couple different flavors, and you just kind of like swirl it together into one delicious. Mess. That's exactly how these stories kind of run. It's almost like a really twisted Kirby enthusiasm episode where you have, you know, the A plot, the B plot, and the C plot, and none of them correlate whatsoever, and yet somehow they all twist together and come up with a sinister ending, and it's just absolutely brilliant. So, I, knowing this question was coming, I looked at my pull list, and I was able, I mean, there's a, a bunch of horror comics I'm reading right now, um, but there's three books that I would say that you really should jump out there and try to get if you want to get, you know, some horror comics that are coming out now. One is the first, and this is horror comedy to it, and the absolute degree. And it's one I've talked about in the podcast before. It's the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Uh-huh. Um, the current miniseries is a Beyond Belief, and it, it's a horror comedy. The first, it, it's haunted houses and vampires, and it's fun and funny and it's clever um second is Jeff Lemire and pardon me as I should have written down the name Andrea Sorrentino 
Uh, Gideon Falls. I have heard great things about that. Gideon Falls is a supernatural... It's two stories. One set in a city mm-hmm. with a guy who is going to therapy and he's got some form of obsessive compulsive disorder and keeps seeing this black barn. And then there's a priest in a little town and it's, you know, you're... It's not quite your typical Stephen King weird little town, but it's got that kind of a vibe to it. And there's a conspiracy and disappearances, and there people are seeing the same black bar. And you can tell the two stories are slowly moving towards each other, and they haven't quite gotten there yet. I mean, we're in the... I think two or three issues into the second arc, so there's still some time. But it's genuinely creepy, and when we get to talking about favorites, it plays into a couple of my kind of favorite tropes, the the mystery in the little town. Again, that's probably King's influence with the little town. And the third book is actually a book out of Boom, uh, Cullen Bunn's Bone Parish. Ah, okay. Bone Parish is a crime horror story about a family that is selling this new drug that it, it, it looks like cocaine and when you sniff it you start experiencing someone else's life only it's not cocaine it's bones it is powdered magically infused bones and there's so while you've got people now ODing on this drug and experiencing like the deaths of the people that they're huffing, you also have a a, a New York syndicate and um, a South American cartel moving in trying to take the the business away from the people who are the, the native. It's in New Orleans, mm-hmm. so of course it's got that wonderful rich New Orleans creep to mm-hmm. it. But it's a great blend of crime and horror. Colin Bunn has a good... Oh, oh yeah. He, you know, you want to talk about licensed horror, which I know is a very kind of dodgy field to get into, but uh, he recently uh, revisited Pumpkinhead, of all things. I mean, you go to a horror con, you say Pumpkinhead, I mean, everybody's going to know that. But, I mean, generally, I mean, it came out, you know, in the heart of, like, the pop horror era in the late 80s. Here we have a straight-up, classic, very well-made monster story that almost like kind of works as an EC with like a dark you know dark morality and a dark sense of you know ironic justice to it and everything and it was just very unexpected you know that that's the one of the things I like to see with license you know don't go for the obvious stuff don't go for the silly team ups go after the more obscure properties and build them back up Cullen Bunn is one of two writers who are now have become mainstream or known for their mainstream superhero stuff mm-hmm. who did really great uh, creator owned horror early on him and Joshua Williamson ah yeah Nailbiter yeah oh and I will believe me we will get to a point about favorite horror comics and you will hear more about Nailbiter for me <laughs> when we get to that point and more about a Cullen Bunn book when we get to that point as well because there are they have both written some great stuff not that I mean, it's a great book it's more um, weird westerns is a little more fantasy than horror but there were horror elements mm-hmm. uh, to Cullen Bunn's Sixth Gun which mm-hmm. is a great book didn't make my favorite horror comics as I said it's more fantasy but it is a great great like horror fantasy western mix 
Um, I think as far as what I'm reading, I'm re I've been reading a lot of uh, Zach Thompson and Lottie Nadler. Uh, you know, they've been doing, they pretty much got the body horror aesthetic nailed mm. down at this point. Um, if you've read Come Into Me yes. from Black Mask, which is a series where they kind of mush two people's minds together in the same body. Um, and also, even uh, if you've been reading the X-Men Black one-shots, the, the Apocalypse backup uh, that they've been writing is... It's like reverse body horror because Apocalypse is devolving through science. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it like he, go, he gets like human arms, with, but he's still in that like blue boxy robotic body. And then eventually he's just like uh, a monkey with the, the signature kind of blue fish lips jawline thing and like how he gets out of it. Um, which I won't spoil the, uh, the fourth issue. Um, that's actually been the best part of most of the black one shots because they've been wildly uneven. But uh, moving on, uh, one book that I'm excited for that's coming out uh, this coming Wednesday is Ahoy's Edgar Allan Poe's Snifter of Terror Anthology, oh. Oh. which is supposed to be like horror meets drunk history. <laughs> and it's got uh, stories by uh, Tom Pyre, who's writing the, the Wrong Earth, who's been on this podcast before, and uh, Mark Russell. So, uh, looking forward to that. And of course, there's the Archie Horror. I uh, can't not talk about Archie Horror. Yeah, it's. I mean, I have. I'm not reading any of the current crop of books, although I am really. I guess, like Colin Bunn. I'm interested in the uh, the Cheryl Blossom. The Blossom Six 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 Six. I mean, it's. I understand Robert Aguero Sacasa is a busy guy, and I understand that he decided to work on those two books with both Francesco Francavilla and Robert Hack, who are both excellent artists, but are not exactly known for being speedy. But both Afterlife with Archie and Killing Adventures of Sabrina, currently on Netflix, um, were great books, and they both stopped mid-arc. Oh, and Sabrina never ended? Sabrina, they did eight issues. There were two issues left, and it just sort of... Nah. Oh, that's sad. Um, I am reading Vampironica, which is out now. Um, great Smallwoods art. Like that's the, the, the thing about Vampironica is that book is more gorgeous than it has a right to be. Um... Just as this is a book that isn't currently running, but it just jumped my head when you talked about body horror. Yeah. And as sort of a um, a little talk, a little something about for representation. Um, mm -hmm. If you get the chance, uh, Aftershocks Insects. Yes. Is an absolutely Fantastic. gorgeous book. Fantastic. Um, Marguerite Bennett. Mm -hmm. And it's a Victorian and uh, Ariella Christina's. Thank you, thank you. Whose art? I should say because I mean the, the art is. I mean, it, no slight to Bennett's story, which is phenomenal, but the art sells that book beyond anything you could imagine. It is a. It, it's Victorian, and it's about you know women sort of escaping the bonds of that period while also turning into insect monsters and <laughs> killing those who oppress them, which is kind of awesome and sort of satisfying <laughs> when you read it right after you've read the news. It, it, it's really <laughs> satisfying to see somebody get their comeuppance. Um, yeah, we, we started with your modern thing. That's right. This all started with Ice Cream Man. <laughs> yes. Um, 
How about how about that blending of, of superheroes and horror? Because there's been plenty of examples of that. We've mentioned uh, the uh, Batman story. I learned that Barbatos uh, existed prior to 2017 uh, just now. But uh, what are some good examples with, uh, of that? I think, I mean, personally, I go immediately to, you know, the X-Men fighting old-school Gene Colton Dracula. Yes. Uh, good old uh, Sinkevich, one of his mm. early yeah. works on there. I mean, you know, they, they, they play up all, to, you know... The classic vampire tropes, I mean, you know, right down to, you know, Kitty makes a cross that has absolutely no power whatsoever, but he accidentally touches her star of David, and that's his, that's what burns him. And one of, I think one of the earlier references of uh, Nightcrawler being explicitly religious, I and mean, he's, Dracula seems of all the X-Men to be the most afraid of him. He seems to be the most effective of that. Meanwhile, Wolverine actually makes the sign of the cross with his claws, and Dracula just laughs it off. And, yeah. <laughs> Now, we're bringing Marvel. I love Marvel Dracula and like old school Marvel Dracula, not yes. the red armor, oh, yeah. ponytail. Like that. Where did that guy come from? Victor Gishler's Death of Dracula, Curse of the Mutants. That's when that version appeared. Oh, so when Cyclops told Dracula he wants him to follow his heart. Yes, <laughs> that one. If we if we could say there was one last good hurrah for the classic Dracula, it was on the moon with Doctor yes! Doom. With uh, Captain Britain. I was yes. going to bring that up. If you didn't, Great Captain stuff. Britain at MI-13 is a fantastic series. Pete Wisdom beats Dracula. Yes, yes. It's <laughs> so great. But if you get the chance, and you can, there are now both out-of-print essentials and possibly still in-print omnibuses, omnibi, of Tomb of Dracula. Mm. I've read a lot of that 70s Marvel horror, I, Werewolf by Night, which is yeah. fun. I'm a werewolf guy more than a vampire guy, but mm-hmm. Werewolf by Night is good, but it's kind of hit or miss. And Cur- uh, not Curse of Frankenstein, maybe this Curse of Frankenstein, but the Frankenstein book, and there was the Living Mummy. Mm-hmm. They're okay. The Tomb of Dracula ran 70 issues, 64 of which consecutively by Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan, and it builds this mythology and this supporting cast to Dracula and it is so cool. And there's one issue in the 30s I want to say it's 32 and I meant to write it down and I forgot um, where it's the final confrontation between Dracula and his sort of arch foe, Quincy Harker who's the son of Jonathan and Mina Harker, the characters in the original novel. And Harker has basically built this house to be a death trap for Dracula. And you see Dracula slowly fighting his way through trap after trap to finally confront wheelchair-bound... It was like weaponized wheelchair. Yes, Yes. weaponized wheelchair. And in the end, both Quincy... Spoilers for a comic that is (laughs) 40-something years old... (laughs) But Quincy wins. He gets, he stakes Dracula, and yeah. this is that, you know, Dracula gets staked, and if you pull out the stake, he comes back. But mm-hmm. Quincy does stake Dracula, but Quincy dies in the process. Mm-hmm. And it's a phenomenal, it's just this, like, ratcheting tension, and just all the cool traps that Wolfman created, or, you know, with the Marvel method back in the day, maybe it was Colin who came up with, maybe... Wolfman just said, and there's a cool trap here, and Gene Colan <laughs> created one. Real quick, I, I, if you know the, the backstory behind this, because I don't, was it, there's some kind of editorial reason why Doctor Strange wiped out all the vampires at one point? Yeah, the Montessi formula, I am not sure. You know, it, was that 
some kind of like gym shooter mandate or I don't know that would be that would be fascinating it, to find out it was something I mean it was referenced in almost every book so I've been revisiting uh, the classic John Byrne Alpha Flights mm. and even one of those issues makes it you know well there's no more vampire buyers anymore because of Doctor Strange yeah. weird yeah that's it, that was I mean, it, that's that Marvel era where they did I mean the they did a lot of that stuff where something happens and it gets referenced across the line. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the Casket of Ancient Winter. I was just that. thinking about that Inferno. Inferno, yeah. There yeah. is, there was this real effort to create a real, more so than I can think of any other era, mm-hmm. to create a cohesive universe. There. But one that was organic too. So it's not like it was. Necess- it wasn't like a tie-in where you had to buy. You know, this issue of Spider-Man. If you were reading Walt Simonson's Thor, just because Spidey's, you know, looking for the Hobgoblin, he's like. What a snow out there today. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, another great horror superhero mashup is the three graphic novel uh, Batman vampire cycle from Doug Mensch and Kelly Jones. So if you want to talk a master of horror comic art, I mean, you, when you talk, I mean, your Bernie Wrightson is sort of your, you know, yeah. top yes. tier. I was going to be getting into him we'll, very we'll soon. To, yeah, but but <laughs> Kelly Jones is up there pretty high too. And this was this three volume Elseworlds graphic novel series: Red Rain, Bloodstorm, and Crimson Mist. And Red Rain is basically just Batman versus Dracula. And volume two is Batman, who was turned into a vampire by Dracula fighting off his baser vampiric instincts while fighting the Joker and teaming up with Catwoman, who's a werecat. <laughs> and then volume three is Batman, who's now been corrupted by the vampirism, wiping out every criminal he sees, and Jim Gordon and Alfred having to team up with classic Batman rogue to try to stop Batman. It's really interesting and Gorgeous. I mean, it's Kelly Jones at the height of his Kelly Jones. <laughs> While we're still, you know, sticking with, you know, the, the superhero pool right there and the great Bernie Wrights. And uh, mm-hmm. one of his, I, I, I mean, I, I'm afraid to call any of his work obscure, but one of his lesser known things, simply for the fact that it has been in print, was um, a one-off graphic novel that he did in the mid-80s with Spider-Man called Which is basically almost like a, a child's fable where he's brought into another dimension by this young sorceress to basically battle monsters and the only you know the only way that like Bernie Wrightson you know could tell and it's just unbelievably gorgeous I mean that was the thing about Wrightson um, you know in, in preparation for this I mean I read about a decade's worth of uh, old Warren magazines uh, <laughs> recently and uh, going back to Edgar Allan Poe he did an, uh, a black and white adaptation of the black cat mm-hmm. And it's just every single panel is a masterpiece in itself. I mean, the, the, the man was absolutely a stunning master of, like, just craft and taste. And when, when you're talking about rights in horror and superheroes, you, you got to at least name drop Swamp Thing. Oh, yeah. Right, with Len I mean, Wein, yeah. Yep, Len Wein. I mean, this, he co-creates Swamp Thing. Sophisticated suspense. suspense. Yes. <laughs> yep, and when you're going, I mean... Those first ten, I believe it was ten, Wien and Wrights and Swamp things mm-hmm. are gorgeous mm-hmm. and amazing. And then you you know get the end of that series and the beginning of the second series. And then 
when you get to your superhero again your superhero horror and your sort of pantheon of enshrined great superhero horror mm-hmm. Alan Moore's Swamp Thing is horror at superhero horror at its finest it is some of my favorite Moore it, it, it's horror almost in the face of evil. if you really want to go at like the old EC standard of you know like ironic justice or you know this sense of morality I mean it's almost like on a cosmic level just like the wrath of nature mm-hmm. it, it, it's just like this this primal you know ethereal force that you know it's terrifying I mean it, it, there's you know there's a beauty to it but it's terrifying at the same time and it, it almost does I mean you know in dealing with Alec Holland deals with you know the tropes of like body horror you know just that you know that complete loss of control of your own, you know, biological destiny. I mean, you're just being completely re-hosted and, you know, rewritten. And and more plays with classic horror tropes. Yes. The yeah. the two issues with the vampires who live underwater mm-hmm. so the sun never touches them. Yeah. And the um the curse, the menstruation werewolf issue mm-hmm. is fascinating stuff and so ahead of its time. And it gave us John Constantine. So let's, you know, I mean, whatever Alan Moore might have done or be doing, he gave us John Constantine. And for that, we do owe him because loves me some John Constantine. I think, the, you know, the thing that really stuck me with that run, I mean, especially, you know, the Rights of Spring issue is, you know, Abigail is such, you know, an, a, a, a force of just pure innocence in the face of this, like, this terror. And she's just, you know... Oh, I guess we're dating now. <laughs> just gonna yep. shape of water it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, the only time she gets freaked out is, oh, my creepy adoptive uncle is in my husband's body and is groping me. <laughs> That's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> That's. I mean, Moore did some great. I mean, that that whole arc. I mean, he gave us the infrastructure of hell mm-hmm. that would become a standard in DC yeah. moving forward. I mean, it influences sand, it influences a, a little bit of Sandman. Not, I mean, Gaiman does his own thing with Hell, but there's mm-hmm. bits and pieces of that there. It gives us all of the the concepts that would become Hell at DC yeah. Comics. It never had a Mephisto, yeah. mm-hmm. and Moore gave it that and brought in he brought in Etrigan, who had not appeared in a lot of mainstream DC stuff. If I can't remember an Etrigan appearance in a superhero comic before Moore's Yeah, he had his Kirby heyday. And yeah. I remember, like, Lobo. He hustled Lobo several but, times. And that was, that was yeah. after. And I'm trying to remember if the Matt Wagner series was before or mm. after. I think it was after yeah. Swamp Thing. That was a really cool Matt Wagner written and drawn four-issue Etrigan mm. in the series. Oh, the other thing about Swamp Thing, it introduced uh, some little character, John, what's his name? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. <laughs> So many oh, great, nasty habit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so many great stories, and he just found such interesting ways to tell a horror story within the superhero tropes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so easy to look at more as the guy who wrote Watchmen and V and didn't play well with others. But in his early work, he absolutely played well with others and did stories that fit in a continuity. 
other person's continuity. Well, Captain Britain also, which has kind of been kind of written out of history yeah. at this point. Yeah. He built the continuity for uh, for Captain Britain pretty he, much. He pretty much established six one six. Yeah, know, that's now one more. The Omniverse. Yeah. 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 You know, um, flashing back for a second, we were talking about Colin Bunn, and I think we have more Colin Bunn to talk about. But uh, a personal favorite of mine of his is uh, Dark Ark, which is ongoing mm. at Aftershock, uh, which is basically there was a second arc during the biblical flood that is just all uh, classic monsters and demons, and this wizard who made a deal with the devil has to keep them safe, or they, you know they're all going to die and. You know, given we're playing with biblical historical fiction, this is probably still true. But it's fun to kind of watch them all, you know, vampires and manticores and and, 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 and <laughs> unicorns who are like, I'm not even supposed to be on this arc. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, squabbling and betraying each other and and what have you. Uh, plus, there's a nice little like hold where they keep their human sacrifices. Um, yeah, so that's a that's that's a really good series, but. Uh, you wanted to get to uh, some other Bun stuff. Yeah, so I, I when we get into my favorite horror comics of all time, mm-hmm. one of them is absolutely Cullen Bunn and Tyler Crook's Harrow County. Mm. Harrow County out of Dark Horse. Uh, it wrapped up recently, 30 issues, beginning, middle, and end. It has been optioned for a series on Sci-Fi Channel. Um, but it is the story of a girl named Emmy who finds out, at least finds out what she thinks to be the truth of her parentage might not be the right word as she doesn't really have parents. She is the reincarnation of a witch who terrified and controlled Harrow County, which is this little literally backwoods town. I'm not using that, you know, as a pejorative. It's literally like in the woods in the middle of nowhere. In the back part. (laughs) Yes. And you see her coming into her power and learning more and more about her history and this family of supernatural beings of which she is a member of. And Tyler Crook's art is absolutely stunning. He cut his teeth on the BPRD stuff. So he he's not a, by no means a Mignola clone, but he comes out of the Mignolaverse, which that the, the Mignola stuff is a, a podcast in its own <laughs> right. You can't other than Hellboy and his universe is friggin' cool. But Colum, he does this it's a and I, what I said before about character driving horror. It is a very character-driven story when you see Emmy and her quote-unquote twin sister and her best friend and all of these other characters around her and them dealing with the weird and the supernatural and Emmy trying to prove to everyone that she isn't evil and everyone... And half the townsfolk are people, and half of them are constructs of the witch who have developed a life of their own. They look like people, but they're not people. Oh, wow. And it's a fascinating book, and it's really, really great. And you can now get the entire series in five or six trades that are all out there ready to be gotten. Um... 
if we want to go into other favorites. Sure. Um, Harrow County is definitely up there. Uh, two more somewhat modern picks, mm-hmm. uh, one of which I mentioned briefly before, which is Nailbiter. Mm. Nailbiter is a is Joshua Williamson and Mike Henderson, um, who have done other work together. Um, but Williamson is best known at this point as the dude who's writing a great run on Flash right now and is writing Justice League Odyssey. And in my own head, I keep thinking he's the one writing Dark because I connect him with horror in my head. Okay. But that's James Tynion. Right. And Nailbiter is the story of Buckaroo, Oregon, this little town that has spawned more serial killers than any town in the country. (laughs) There have been 16 of these Buckaroo butchers. (laughs) And... The titular character is Edward Charles Warren, the nail-biter, a serial killer known for gnawing on the fingernails of his victims. (laughs) And in the first issue, Warren is acquitted on a technicality and goes back to Buckaroo. And the series follows these various characters, Warren, the town sheriff who happened to be his high, Warren's high school sweetheart, a local girl who's the weird goth girl who everyone believes will be the next Buckaroo Butcher, mm. and a former NSA, uh, the, the nice way to put it would be uh, enhanced interrogation specialist. Okay who was contacted by a friend of his who was an FBI agent who'd been researching the Buckaroo phenomenon and said he'd found the secret to why Buckaroo was doing this. And when the, the NSA guy who's been released because he got, he was now out of the NSA and kind of got caught, you know, beating a suspect and has now been suspended, um, he gets to Buckaroo, the FBI agent has disappeared. And so it becomes these guys investigating the the crime and trying to figure out what is the secret of Buckaroo and you get all of these wonderfully created and horribly creepy serial killers there I mean there's a little bit of the supernatural to it but it's more a suspense book than a, a you know supernatural horror book but with somewhere in the middle of that series there is a series of panels and pages that plays up a classic urban legend and uses a page turn in one of the best ways I have ever seen in a comic. And I don't want to say anything more about it. If you read the series, you will get to this page turn (laughs) involving the sheriff in her house alone. And it is a brilliant, brilliant page turn. (laughs) <laughs> Better than uh, John Byrne having She-Hulk escape and literally tearing through the page through a mile-high comics oh. ad. And <laughs> okay, so it's, it's up there. It's up there. But, and I had then, to throw that in there. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> but what probably qualifies as my favorite horror comic of all time is Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez's Lock and Key. Lock and Key came out from IDW. It wrapped up... Or five years ago now? Yeah, it's been a minute. It's been a while. There are... The main series is... Here I go again, not writing things down. I believe (laughs) six main trades, and then there's one supplemental trade that collects miscellaneous stories. Mm -hmm. It is 
I mean, Joe Hill, for those who don't know, his full real name is Joseph Hillstrom King. He is the son of Stephen King, but started out his career trying not to be, you know, following on his father's coattails, so he went by Joe Hill. Mm -hmm. Lock and Key, which has now was once was optioned and a pilot was produced and has now been optioned again by I want to say it's Hulu but it might be Netflix for another series just for those who want to um, Lock and Key is the story of the Lock family it, the, the first issue sees the three Lock children uh, Tyler, Kinsey, and Bodie returning to their father's ancestral home Key House in Lovecraft, Massachusetts. And it's the three kids and their mother moving back to this house that their uncle lives in. Because their father, who was a high school guidance counselor, was murdered by one of his, uh, a pair of his students. Mm -hmm. And various other horrible things happened. And they, they, a fresh start, they go back, they go to Lovecraft. And you can already tell when the town is named Lovecraft and it's up in New England, no good of this is going to come. But it is, and again, I'm going to say it for a third time, a character-based series. You come to love these kids. And you come to absolutely fear the thing that is after them and after the keys to Key House because you see the kids find that this house has this group of mystical keys hidden throughout and each key when inserted into a door and turned does something different one key when you turn it you walk through your body falls and your soul lifts out of your body and you can wander as a ghost there's a, the key that when you turn it you go in and you pop out anywhere you want there's a key that you insert into the back of your head and turn it and you lift the top of your head off and in there is the sort of representation of your psyche and you can add, like you can put a book in there and you now know everything in the book or you can remove all your fears and the kids are discovering all the different keys and all the different things you can do while also being pursued by a being that calls itself Dodge, that was at one point human and the childhood friend of their dead father, but who now is something else entirely and wants the keys for its own reasons. Mm -hmm. And it is a coming-of-age story. It is, there's an issue that is almost entirely a Calvin Hobbes homage there is a page in Rodriguez's traditional style and then a comic strip done in a Bill Watterson uh, homage style. There are questions about sexuality, about race, about all the different things that a kid encounters growing up and it is surrounded in some of the A, most gorgeous art, but some of the most utterly heart-rending terror that you can find in a comic. I cannot rock, recommend Lock and Key highly enough. Okay. 
what other hot favorites do you got lined up there, so Rob? Really, before I go into you know my, my all timers right there, I've got to go back to like what you were saying about what makes for a great horror is about the characters, and ideally, you're right. I mean, that does make for the best kind of storytelling, and um, under that, you know, I think my pick, um, which I'm still kind of um, pretty much in the middle of the adventure of, is uh, Rachel Rising oh, by uh, Terry Moore, uh, Strangers in Paradise, which is both a resurrection story and a murder mystery of somebody who actually is trying to solve their own murder. Um, basically, you know, just the way that the story is presented is like a walking nightmare. is absolutely delicious, and it's something, you know... That said, I'm not a huge fan of ongoing horror. I mean, as much as I love that book and everything, I'm the anthology guy. You know, I mean, coming back, you know, I mean, I was a huge fan of The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. And, you know, sort of those... those brief little morality tales where the characterization is kind of beside the point. It's all about the hook. It's all about the gotcha moment. It's all about, you know, here's this you know, this delicious little bite of, you know, just ironic brutal justice, you know, and you didn't get that anywhere better than you did with the EC comics. Right there. I, I, sometimes, I mean, just completely off the board. Uh, one of my personal favorites, and it's the one that everybody talks about, is the immortal foul play which actually Dan I know you were even familiar with this was the uh, Feldstein story about the baseball team okay that the player who's uh, murdered uh -huh. kind of like you know secretly on the field and the other team has their revenge and plays like Herbie Sutton they literally dismember this guy and play like a midnight game yes. it's, it's horrible I mean you, you, you've got to laugh and, and at the same time you know, choke. That, that was the big thing in the EC comics. Whenever you had that ultimate mo moment of horror, the character always choked. Um, I will also, just as a fun thing, for if you haven't been reading it, uh, T Terry Moore's current Strangers in Paradise 25th, yeah. Yeah. there are nods to all of his other works. So characters from Rachel Rising pop mm -hmm. up yeah. in Strangers 25, as do characters from Echo yeah. and Motor Girl. It's mm -hmm. really cool. Now back to the EC, you know, uh, you know. Aside from the Feldstein stuff, actually, my favorite name attached to the EC stories is actually Ray Bradbury. Okay. There's two mm. stories that you know I want to talk about: uh, a horror story and a horrific science fiction story. Uh, one of them is one that it got a lot of notoriety called The Handler, which is you know a, a dark morality tale about you know mortuary about you know the. the, the this guy walks around town and he, he's just the total butt of the joke. Everybody ridicules him for being the one, you know, who handles the corpses. You know, oh, your, your handshake is so cold. You know? <laughs> Did somebody just shake, you know, shake your hand? Get it, somebody? <laughs> and this bastard actually takes all of his rage out on his, you know, his unliving subjects. I mean, I don't know how else to say. I mean, you know, these poor corpses that, you know, need to be dressed up and everything. I mean, there's one who uh, is kind of gluttonous, so he literally removes her brain and bakes a cake to place inside of her skull. He embalms another guy with ink. Um, there's another guy who was a very, like, stocky build guy and sort of a personal joke. He uh, beheads him and actually buries his head with bricks kind of, like, shaped his body. And... You know, the dark morality tale of it is, he, you know, these specters actually come back for him, <laughs> you know, dismember him. And it's, it's dude, just great gotcha moment. My uh, all-time favorite EC story 
was um, something that was printed in the, the Weird Science book, and it was based on a Bradbury story called Zero Hour. Okay. Which is something that I would absolutely love to see remade in some way, and I'll tell you why. Um, the whole story deals with, um, you know, a little, you know, idyllic uh, 50s neighborhood where uh, the kids are playing a game called Invasion. They're going around and, you know, they're stealing silverware and various tools and things around the house, and they're doing these mysterious things in the yard, and they're, they're talking about, you know, friends from Mars, this, this guy named Drill who wants to come visit, and the parent, you know, parents are just like, ah, they're just playing these odd games and everything, and then it turns out that kids throughout the entire nation are playing this game, Invasion, and it turns out that it's a Martian ploy is basically a sneak attack. Instead of just outright attacking, they actually go through the children because the adults will never see that coming. Mm -hmm. And finally, you get this this sense of paranoia where the parents are actually starting to believe what's happening, and they lock themselves in the basements. And you know, the kids are just knocking at the door, and the parent opens the door, you know, and you see these ghostly specters behind the kids, like they're here. And just you know, and again, just a wonderful gotcha moment, but. Something I would love to see now because it's such a like a, a twisted inversion of like Stranger Things and uh -huh. like you know the, the kids on bike genre. You know these, <laughs> these kids are always banding together to fight evil. You know what about something where they're actually very innocently and playfully enabling it to come? You know, great stuff. <laughs> There's a it just just remind I I wrote it down and it slipped my mind and then you said it. There's a great. And it, it falls under both favorites and superhero horror. The uh, Michael Fleischer, Jim Aparo Spectre, mm. which was a very short run in the 70s, but it does what those EC comics uh, did. And it's the Spectre wreaking ironic revenge on people. <laughs> like, oh, it's a barber. He's a hairdresser, so I'm going to turn my hands into scissors and cut him up. Yeah. Oh, you're a fashion designer. I'm going to turn you into a mannequin and throw you into a... <laughs> oh, an, uh, uh, not an oven, but into a fire. You know? <laughs> it, it's a it's great stuff, and it's very influenced by that classic oh, yeah. EC ironic twist stuff. These are campfire stories, basically. Just, like, you know, put to... You know, paper. Um, my last one that I, you know, want to bring up, uh, I gotta give, you know, the Warren magazines, which is basically the spiritual successor. And in some ways, I mean, they brought people like Jack Davis over and everything um, in the early '70s to the EC stories. You know, it's the same kind of setup where you have, you know, your your narrator and your introductor, and you know, and you've got the gallows humor and everything. Um, later on, there was a, a great little story from uh, uh, Jerry Boudreaux and an early Richard Corbett called Anti-Christmas, which is sort of a um, perverse retelling of the nativity. It actually takes place in Nazareth, Indiana, and it's literally the birth of the Antichrist. <laughs> I mean, they have three wise men who actually comes to take it. it very twisted. One of the few uh, color stories that I can ever actually remember reading, because everything was always in gorgeous black and white, but it's, you know, that, that gorgeous Richard Corbin color that, you know, we with Den later on with heavy metal. I don't think... Actually, I'm surprised that it occurs to me that I haven't mentioned... I don't think we've talked about much of anything of it, but there's a ton of great Vertigo horror. I mean, Vertigo mm -hmm. started out yeah. as very much a horror imprint. Mm -hmm. And, it, I mean, it's grown... It grew into, you know, taking in science fiction and crime. But, I mean, it's, and we talked about Swamp Thing, but Swamp Thing isn't a Vertigo series. Swamp Thing was... 
the spiritual predecessor. It was the stuff that was kind of folded in and became Vertigo after the fact. Right. I mean, like Sandman. Right. I mean, you're, you're actually your most horrific Sandman stories are before it was. I mean, 24 Hours, Sandman Six is the horror Sandman story with Doctor Destiny twisting people in a diner to his will over the course of 24 hours, and it is a seriously (laughs) creepy story. I mean, you have hope in hell with Dream going into hell, but that's much more a fantasy story than a horror story. Mm -hmm. 24 hours is a horror story. And And especially early Hellblazer, I mean, Hellblazer is a horror story all the way through, but the early stuff, the Jamie Delano stuff, you know, which came out in the 80s when comics were never political, but it is a very much a response to Thatcherism and to yuppie. Like, there's a, there's a lot of, like, he takes on soccer hooligans, he takes on yuppies, he takes on Thatcher. It's very of its time. Like, you read that that the trade Original Sins, which is the first Hellblazer trade, and it's very dated in its subject matter in some ways mm-hmm. it's so great horror but it's very much of its moment we know a lot of those guys you know that that first you know wave of vertigo came from 2000 AD and a lot of that oh, set, yeah. you know I mean that was the anti-Thatcher oh, document of the you know the 80s pretty much it was um, the, the British British invasion of, of the 80s comics scene, essentially yeah. yeah I mean Brian Belong and mm-hmm. you know even Alan Moore um, kind of a um, the other uh, big com- uh, competitor with Marvel, they had their Epic imprint, which is basically kind of their Vertigo. I know they, they, that launched a little bit before Vertigo. And uh, the most notable thing there, one of the most underrated horror books, and I think for the fact that it, it is sort of a licensed book, was the Hellraiser that they did. Um, they were uh, published in you know the prestige, like the bookshelf format, and it was an anthology story, um, very only like loosely based on the film. I mean, they didn't really deal with the continuity, no pinhead or anything like that. They, you know, as much as they tried to make him sort of another like horror icon, like you know, the Freddy, yeah. like any pop element of you know the Hellraiser marketing machine, which in face it wasn't as big as the others, <laughs> is not there. Where you know there there are stories that you know really deal with like you know the more like you know the baser elements of the human condition and. You know, just the, of desire. There's a, a really good Gaiman and McKean. Yes. Either Gaiman and McKean or Gaiman and Buckingham. No, it was McKean. I just read it this okay. morning, and it's gorgeous. Oh, yeah. I, you would think, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, bringing in talent like that for a licensed book is like, you know, getting a tank to kill a mosquito, you think, <laughs> but it, it, it's so beautiful. I mean, it, and it's great that, you know, these books do exist in reprints. Um, early work actually from uh, now uh, Lana Wachowski, bef- long before Bound and The Matrix and everything, actually had written a story. Um, there's a lot of Dwayne McDuffie stories. There's early Mignola. There's work from you know Mike uh, Mora Bolton. It's, it's yeah. I mean, it's really you know it's held up. I mean, longer than that film series really has. Plus, also, they kind of played, you know, the whole idea of the shared universe with uh, the excellent Nightbreed, where they actually did the crossover Cabal. Mm. Uh, it was, that, you know, that dealt with the world of the Cenobites and Midian together. And, you know, very genius, you know. This is before Alien versus Predator and any of that, you know, so. Or Archie versus Predator. There you go. <laughs> oh, classic. Yep. 
the, the one of the stepping stones for Archie Horror, Archie versus Predator. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Uh, well, as we're wrapping up here, any final thoughts, gentlemen? Uh, there is a lot of great horror out there, folks. Yeah. And it's it's going to keep coming. So, you know, keep your ears out and your head down. Kind of, kind of speaking very broadly, we're in what may be like a modern golden age of horror. I mean, both with film. I mean, you have the A24 line mm-hmm. with very, you know, cerebral art-based horror. And even like, you know, the Blumhouse, which is more pop, but you do have interesting things. You have Get Out. And uh, the amazing Upgrade, which came out this year, which, I mean, that is a bona fide modern B-movie classic. I mean... I mean, have you seen just have you seen Hellfest yet? I haven't. It's very I saw it a couple yeah. weeks ago. It is very much in that eighties slasher style. Yeah. But it, it, it really feels like you could have watched this in nineteen eighty seven, but it's a lot of fun. Being being a longtime horror fan, it's nice to see that it survives now and thrives in so many different kind of iterations where you can have the pop horror and you have the thoughtful stuff. You know, you have body horror, and you have monsters and things like that. You know, both on television. I mean, you know, I think streaming has been really wonderful. I know the big thing we have not mentioned once is Walking Dead. I mean, I, I guess we have to give it some kind of credit. Yeah, I think we just did. It, there you go. I mean, it, it definitely touched on a zeitgeist moment and, you know, the whole zombie thing. And it is a part of it. I mean, whether you're a fan or not, it, it really did contribute to that. But I mean, I think Walking Dead, at least as a comic, has transcended being a horror comic anymore zombies are such a small part of what walking dead is right now like i mean i i still read walking dead and trade i mean there was a there's a little bit of a zombie horror a couple trades ago but zombies are a background element to that book the horror it's it's like the second act of 28 days later like you get to that point 28 days later where the zombies aren't the thing anymore it's Christopher Eccleston and his soldiers and the real monsters are us sort of thing and that's where Walking Dead has gotten oh it's Dynasty with rednecks and crossbows (laughs) I said it sorry I think that spicy hot take is the perfect way to end this podcast gentlemen we did it (laughs) All right, all right. that's it for this week's show as always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Monday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics. You can follow WMQComics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote. Finally, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.